Father, we're, we're grateful that you have um, communicated to us your heart, your mind. We're grateful, Father, that um, you haven't left us in the dark. Thank you for your word, and thank you, Father, for an opportunity to um, be exposed to it this morning throughout many, many venues in this building with our children, with our youth, with adult classes, and now even here with Isaiah. We don't want to take it for granted, Father, that you, you meet us here in your powerful word to change your life. But there is a transformation that takes place by the renewing of our minds that we can understand and really prove what your will is, what your heart is, how we can align our lives accordingly and appropriately. So, Father, uh, teach us. We present ourselves to you and lead us into that truth, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Now, this morning, we're going to kind of ease back into the book of Isaiah since we've been away from it for, for a few weeks. Um, we've already studied the first 39 chapters. And the key theme in those first 39 chapters is that theme of judgment. Because God exposes the sin of his people, the Israelites. He exposes the sins of the nations. And he brings about judgment, or he's prophesying that there's going to be worldwide judgment. The theme of judgment is prominent in the first 39 chapters. And instead of just walking through, I want to explain a little bit and review those 39 chapters, but I want to do it in a way that I'm not flapping my gums. I want to do it in a little more creative way. So would you please watch the screen behind me? The book of the prophet Isaiah Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. 
The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God, and Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment, but because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoe of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. 
But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity and is described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin and one day is going to be replaced by the new Jerusalem where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. So thanks to the Bible Project for that creative uh, presentation. You don't clap for me when I preach. <laughs> I haven't started yet. So that's the first 39 chapters, uh, the theme of judgment. Now when you get to the last part of the book, chapters 40 through 66, those last 27 chapters, the tone changes. There is a shift of focus and a shift of, uh, of emphasis. The focus is less on coming judgment and it's more on coming peace through the prince of peace who's going to be coming. Now, it's believed that Isaiah wrote this section um, to not people in his own day, but to the Jewish people that were, had, had been taken off into exile about 100, 150 years into the future. So Isaiah is writing to people that he hasn't even seen. He'll never see 100, 150 years after he leaves the scene. But he's writing to people who are suffering the pain of exile in a foreign country. And he's writing to encourage them. He's writing to explain that one day the Prince of Peace is going to come. One day peace will, 
will um, uh, manifest itself in that promised land again to Jerusalem, but to the whole world. Peace can be experienced, however, he says, in you individually as well. And so he's writing these words of, of hope. Now, that important word, and I really haven't emphasized it so far in our study of Isaiah, but it's a prominent term in Isaiah, and it is that word shalom, peace. You've heard that, I'm sure, many times, shalom, peace. And it's a word that basically means completeness or wholeness or even inner tranquility. And though it it can refer to um, the absence of conflict or war, it's a word that goes much, much uh, more deeply, far more, um, uh, there's far more to it in terms of breadth and depth of meaning. Uh, shalom experienced is multidimensional. It's a, it's a peace, it's a wholeness, it's a completeness, physically, psychologically, socially, spiritually, emotionally, a completeness, a wholeness, a tranquility. If we went back to the book of Genesis, and the Genesis chapter 3 tells us of how sin entered the world, and death came through sin, we see a world that is, that is fragmented. God comes looking for Adam after he sinned. Adam, where are you? And what's Adam doing? The, the man who had enjoyed intimacy and, and a union with his father in heaven now is hiding because of fear internal fragmentation, alienation. He's torn apart. He's broken. Why why did you do this? The woman who who you gave me. And there's a fragmentation in the home. There's an alienation that takes place. Separation, brokenness in the created world. All over, the fall took place, and the world is torn apart because of sin. But Isaiah God, through Isaiah, is promising that one day shalom will come again, that there will be peace, that there will be wholeness, that God will will bring all this this fragmentation, all this alienation, all this separateness and brokenness and divisiveness because of sin. He's going to bring it all back together into a completeness, into a wholeness, where there will be tranquility and rest shalom in the world. So according to Isaiah, this peace, along with, and he also has these key words of righteousness and justice, this is where God is taking the world one day. This is his grand plan, and he's moving it all towards that that ultimate wholeness and completeness and shalom. Um, He's going to do it through the Prince of Peace. And so in one of the opening prophetic statements in Isaiah chapter 9. Remember this verse? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of shalom, peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so the second half of Isaiah focuses on this theme of, of peace and the unfolding plan of God, a sovereign God to bring that about. 
Now, again, all of this is meant to encourage the Jewish people 150 years later down the road who have been torn from their families, torn from their land, separated from all that they held dear, living in exile in a foreign country. And so chapter 40, that begins this last section, chapter 40, verse 1, begins with these words, Comfort, O comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, and that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, comfort with coming shalom. And shalom is defined in, those, in verse 2 there with these three phrases. Her warfare has ended, her iniquity has been removed, and she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, I think the rest of those chapters, those 27 chapters, unpack um, that concept of shalom, that definition or those characteristics. So you could take those three phrases and outline the rest of the book of Isaiah. It would look like this. In Isaiah 40 through 48, that first nine chapters, there's the promise of peace. Her warfare has ended. Now, what is spoken in these nine chapters is a wonderful prophecy that God is going to raise up another world leader, a Persian king by the name of Cyrus. In fact, this is the amazing thing. He actually names him Cyrus, which is why, by the way, some Old Testament scholars who just can't believe in a prophetic, omniscient, all-wise, sovereign God would say, well, Isaiah, a prophet, couldn't have written that because he's naming Cyrus, who doesn't come on the scene to 150 years later. Well, what kind of a God is it that doesn't know who Cyrus is, and he actually names him in this passage? It's the promise of coming peace for these exilic people that Cyrus is going to be raised up by the mighty hand of Jehovah God, and he's going to deliver those people out of the captivity of Babylon and bring them back into their own land. But the first section, nine chapters, ends in chapter 48, verse 22, with these ominous words. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. He's talking about coming peace. He's coming about, talking about salvation and deliverance from Babylon, that God is going to overthrow all the evil of Babylon, bring his people back into safety. And then he just throws this verse out. There is no peace, shalom, for the wicked. That's the first nine chapters. Then the second nine chapters, chapters 49 through 57, emphasizes the prince of peace. Her iniquity has been removed. And in December, that's what we focused on, those servant songs, that wonderful prophetic uh, section that uh, emphasizes a suffering servant, the Messiah, is going to come and go to do something that is just too amazing to even behold. He's going to bear the sin of his people. He's going to take our sin upon himself, and he's going to die in our place. That God is going to send his suffering servant to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is satisfy a righteous God's wrath against sin. Yes, judgment is going to come, but it fell on his son, the Messiah. All those who put their faith and trust in Christ 
the Messiah, Jesus Christ, find that forgiveness, find that shalom, find that inner peace because their sins have been forgiven. But once again, these nine chapters end with another ominous statement. In verse 57, 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The last nine chapters, chapters 58 to 66, talk about the future glory of this shalom, of this peace. Built off that little phrase, she has received double for all her sins. In spite of her sinfulness, in spite of our sinfulness, God has a plan that he's going to raise up a new heaven and a new earth. And that he's going to bring his kingdom of righteousness and justice and shalom on this earth one day. And he's going to bring wholeness and completeness and perfect tranquility because the suffering servant comes back as the conquering king on this earth to reign supreme and make everything right. That's the last section of Isaiah. But again, the very last verse of the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 24, says this, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. In other words, there is no peace for the wicked. Key concepts here in the last sections of the book of Isaiah. Now, the whole point, I think, of these 27 chapters can be summed up in this kind of a statement. God is a sovereign God who is fulfilling His sovereign plans for peace for His people and for the world. And knowing this should bring to us comfort and personal peace as we trust Him completely. A sovereign God is fulfilling His sovereign plans and will bring about those plans ultimately one day when shalom will be over this world. And knowing that, as He shares that with these people in exile, is to bring them comfort. Oh, comfort my people. God is fulfilling His plan for the ages. And as we know that and trust Him completely, there's personal tranquility and rest that we can experience. Now, I think all that is summed up in a verse, two verses that were found in the first part, kind of embedded in that section on judgment, those first 39 chapters, are these verses and chapters in chapter 26. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. That's the, the word shalom used twice. The steadfast of mind you will keep in shalom, shalom. For emphasis, those, that, those, that word is used twice. Perfect peace. Whose mind, or because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. Trust in the Lord forever. Because he is our everlasting rock. I like the old King James Version, the way I learned it. 
that uh, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed, fixated. It's talking about a, a frame of, of think, a frame of mind, a way of thinking, an undeviating mindset that's focused on the character and the glories of God. Who is God? Who is He? And a mind that is focused on Him and has stayed on Him is growing in an understanding of Him, finds perfect peace, tranquility, because He's trusting in Him. He is the rock of ages, and you can depend on Him. And that's the key theme of Isaiah over and over and over again. God is trustworthy, so depend upon Him. And when you do, perfect shalom. Internally, and one day, it'll be fully realized in this world. Now, the wonderful thing about the book of Isaiah is that it is as relevant today as it was 2,800 years ago. And maybe it doesn't move us to talk about Jewish exiles in a foreign country of Babylon, uh, you know, 2,700 years ago. But if you've read the prayer requests that come in weekly here at Fellowship Bible Church, if you know the stories of many of you sitting out here, um, you know of the desperate need for shalom, for peace. And even though this book is an ancient book, it's relevant for us today. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 15. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. There are many people right now, right here, I think, who need encouragement. I don't know who first said it, but it, it's, it's a true statement. In any pew sits a broken heart. Trials and tribulations come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, don't they? Whether our need is great, whether our need is small, every one of us in this room needs to experience peace that passes all understanding. Because we live in a fragmented world because of sin. We still personally struggle with sin. The Apostle Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 7. We still struggle with alienation within the home, within ourselves, certainly in this world. All sorts of things can come our way that can rob us of of a sense of wholeness and completeness. Many of you know that 15 years ago I had cancer. And um, I found out why I did just a couple of months ago. My doctor found something. He said, you, know, you need to get some extra tests and, and, uh, because he said, I think you've got a genetic defect. Now, my wife could have told him that many, many times over. <laughs> Don't laugh by the looks of things out there. You all have got some problems. So I went down to UVA and sure enough did the genetic testing and, and every one of us have, at least this is known right now in the scientific biological world, every one of us have 10 um, tumor suppressing genes. It keeps tumors being suppressed they, from being formed. 
but there is a condition where one of those genes is malfunctioning. I've got the malfunction gene. And so I've got a 60 to 80% greater chance of colorectal cancers and various other things. Isn't that lovely news? The, the sad thing is that if you remember your biology, you, your DNA, you, know, you, you, you get this passed down from your parents, right? Half of your genetic code comes from daddy, half of your genetic code comes from mommy. And uh, that means that my four kids have a 50% chance that I pass this wacky gene onto them. And so they did their genetic testing a couple of weeks ago. And sure enough, two of my kids have the gene. Two of them don't. And now they're accusing me of favoritism. Go figure. <laughs> Not only have I passed on a sin nature, I've passed on defective genes. And you know, that can fragment you inside as, you, as I can worry about that. As you think about that, what's, what's their future? And not just them, because two of those kids have a f can pass on that, will pass on that gene possibly to their kids, my grandkids. Oh, trials and tribulations come in all shapes and sizes. Some of you sitting out here have far more concerns than a defective gene. You're, you've suffered the, the loss of loved ones. Uh, there's some people in this congregation who um, have a lot more serious diagnoses. Single moms are trying to figure out how we can, how they can make ends meet and pay the electric bill, get through the winter, find daycare. Senior citizens might be struggling about, here I am in my mid-70s, do I actually have enough in my portfolio to get me through till I go home to glory? Will there be enough? Oh, there's all sorts of things that can cause this fragmentation in our spirit, this alienation from the joy of our Savior. But Isaiah, 2,800 years ago, this old prophet said, I've got good news for you. A child will be born, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Shalom. And when he reigns, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of Shalom. And that wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace, became the suffering servant to secure for us the right to become children of God and experience now this side of heaven in all the mess of a fragmented sinful world true shalom because of Jesus Christ that's why Jesus said in John chapter 15 or 14 he said peace I leave with you and my peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you so do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. No matter what the diagnoses are, no matter what the, the world um, um, news is and the mess of economics or whatever it might be that can draw our attention away from Him, 
Jesus says, I can give you my peace. He said it in chapter 16, these things I've spoken to you so that you may have peace in me. For in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And so Isaiah, the prophet, 2,800 years ago, says, Thou wilt keep Mark Carey in perfect peace if my mind is fixated and stayed on him as I trust in him. As I get up in the morning and realize, you know, no matter what a genetic counselor says, my life is in his hands. My kids' life is in his hands. My grandkids, they're in his hands, and he has a sovereign plan. And he's a good God, and he's a faithful God, and he's a gracious God. And peace that passes all understanding floods our, our soul. He will keep you in perfect peace as your mind is stayed on thee, because you will trust in him. So trust in the Lord, the Lord your God. For he is the solid rock, and he's faithful. That is the message and the hope of Isaiah. And as we continue to unpack it in the weeks to come, you'll see that reiterated over and over and over. And my hope and my prayer for myself and for you is that each week we walk away saying, oh my goodness, what a great God. What a wonderful God we have. Blessed be his name. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. We're so grateful, Father. If you've taken this this prophet Isaiah and you, you spoke through him, you also ensured that what he wrote has been secured for us down through the ages and that we can handle it and we can touch it and we can taste and see that you are a good God, you're a faithful God. And it will accomplish what it was meant to accomplish, to bring us comfort, to bring us hope, to unfold for us the plan of the ages of coming one day glorious shalom so that, Father, we will live a life that will glorify you and proclaim it to a world that is lost. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.